0: I think it's important for people to understand that when you're fasting, you're choosing not to eat during a prescribed time period. It's not starvation. It is not counting calories. It is really about honoring the way our bodies are designed to thrive, which is the antithesis of everything we are taught as clinicians. And let's be really clear that physiologically, we would not be evolved as a species if our bodies weren't designed to tap into fat stores to use as energy during times of food scarcity. And up until refrigeration and pasteurization, there was a lot of food scarcity. You know, people couldn't just go to the quick mart and grab a bag of Cheetos, and they couldn't just run to the grocery store and binge on ice cream. Those options were not available. And yet, you know, I've watched over the last twenty plus years of being a clinician, and, and certainly fifty years, if you look at the research, that we've an increasingly metabolically unhealthy population. And that is directly correlated with foods we choose to eat and the food frequency in which we choose to consume them. And so I think really reframing our relationship with eating meals and how frequently we're eating meals or meal-like substances is really important.
1: Welcome to This Functional Life, a show for women just like you, who are ready for more health, vitality, passion, purpose. We're gonna deconstruct norms, Uncover your deepest desires, harness your physical and mental health, and peel back the layers to uncover exactly what you want out of life. I'm your host, Betty Murray, part geek, part magician, and your new medical bestie with a dash of sass. I love taking complex science and making it easy to understand and integrate into daily life. Join the journey to make this chapter the best ever. Let's get driving. My guest today should be a household name, and if she's not, hopefully by the end of this interview, she will be. My guest, Cynthia Thurlow, is a nurse practitioner. She's the CEO and founder of Everyday Wellness Project and international speaker. Her TED Talk, her second one, has been viewed by over 12 million times called Intermittent Fasting Transformational Technique, and she's had 20 years of experience in all aspects of functional medicine and cardiology and emergency medicine. She's also a globally recognized expert in intermittent fasting and nutritional health, and she's been featured on everything from ABC to Fox 5, KLTA, CW, Medium, Entrepreneur, and the Megan Kelly Show. Cynthia has developed an intermittent fasting plan after entering her 40s. So all of this came about because she went through that lovely life transition we get to talk about on dysfunctional life, and she really experienced kind of a health breakdown like many of us do. Intermittent fasting didn't just help her lose weight. She had more energy, did fewer cravings, she lowered her blood glucose levels, and she has now, over the last several years, worked with thousands of women in her private practice, taking her unique program of intermittent fasting, and now has a group program and an intermittent fasting transformation book that is called intermittent fasting transformation, the forty-five day program. So we're going to be talking about all of the great information that is in this book that you guys need to hear. And we had some really great points that we wanted to talk about, and some of them were some interesting uh, data points about different hormones, and some of them are hormones that you probably don't hear talked about that much, and how fasting really impacts those hormones favorably when done well. We also talked a lot about the fasting do's and don'ts and mistakes, particularly for women. So if somebody's tried fasting and it hasn't worked, you know, you probably are making some of these very common errors. So we talked a lot about that. And we even talked about what foods and how to rotate your macros and how to really combine foods in a way that makes that fasting more effective. So without further ado, let's talk to Cynthia. Cynthia and welcome to This Functional Life. Well, welcome, Cynthia. I am so excited to talk to you. And I I want everybody to know, I I have Cynthia's book. Um, Shameless plug for Cynthia's book. But let's talk fasting. Let's talk about what's the difference between men and women fasting? I, I think you know, there's a lot of misinformation out there. And we've got a lot of fasting bros giving information. That doesn't always apply to us. Well, I mean, let me be really clear,
0: you know, much like anything, men and women uh, physiologically are not the same. We do share some characteristics, but women's cycling hormones day to day, week to week throughout our menstrual cycles, really necessitate a different lens for fasting. And then, you know, you go from cycling women at peak fertile years versus perimenopause and menopause. And I I like to really remind women that we should lean into our physiology lean into our menstrual cycles, not feel like we have to apologize for them. Like in a broad-based, high-level approach, I look at men and menopausal women a little, like there's a little bit kinship there because women, once they have gone 12 months without a menstrual cycle, are menopausal and their hormones are a little bit more stable. And I say a little bit more stable than a woman who has Fluctuations between estradiol and progesterone and testosterone, you know, day to day, week to week throughout their menstrual cycle. So the differences really force us to embrace the physiology piece. And it's not to suggest that women that are peak fertile years or still cycling can't fast. They have to fast differently than women in perimenopause and menopause. And so I spent a lot of time in the book talking about that, but it really comes down to the menstrual cycle and really leaning into where we are in terms of hormonal regulation. As an example, during the follicular phase, which is from the day we start bleeding up until ovulation, we have more estrogen or estradiol on board. So we can push our workouts, we can do longer fast versus the luteal phase when we have to lean into more progesterone circulating, we back off on the fasting, we have to change our workouts and our sleep may be impacted. And so Maybe there was one other person in the space that was really speaking to women and speaking in a way that encouraged women to fast versus be fearful of fasting. And so a lot of the gym bros or the fit pros are either giving really poor information and oftentimes it's by well-meaning individuals. I have to believe that. But a lot of times it's not really based in science. It's not based on clinical experience. There are people that work out seven days a week and Uh, do all sorts of extreme workouts. And so I I just like to say for the average female, if we lean into our physiology, we can successfully fast. If we lean into the cues our body is providing us with, we can absolutely fast. I'm not a fan of forced fasting, whether you're male or female, but I also like to clear up a lot of the misconceptions. So women and men can both fast. We just have to lean into the physiology piece to do it successfully.
1: You're absolutely right. So, you mentioned a little bit about the follicular and luteal phase, you know, and, and the differences, and in, in that it's probably not the best time in the middle of the luteal phase when your body's really supposed to be preparing for fertility and, and the start of a growth of a fetus. You know, what are the other things that people need to think about about that phase and why fasting isn't necessarily the best thing to do, particularly longer jaunts of fasting?
0: You know, with progesterone, more progesterone circulating, you're going to change up your macros. You're going to do different types of exercise. It doesn't indicate that you should not do periods of digestive rest, which is like a 12-hour, I call it digestive rest because it's really technically really not fasting in in my mind, but you're still doing benefits by having a 12-hour period of time in which you're not eating. So, you know, those five to seven days preceding your menstrual cycle, you may eat three meals a day. Uh, You may up your carbohydrate intake, healthy carbs. (laughs) Not the junky carbs. If you're craving chocolate, it's a sign that you're not getting something into your diet. So I, I think, in a lot of ways, that if we lean into what is going on, you know, our body is preparing for the potential of uh, a fertilized egg and a potential, you know, pregnancy. And so we want to be giving our body all the nutrients that it needs. We want to be leaning into, you know, progesterone's, uh, you know, benefits and to not feel that we have to do really long fast. I'll give you an example. I have several physician friends who intermittent fast, and I got a text from one a few days ago saying, oh my gosh, I'm barely making it to 16 hours. And I said, where are you in your menstrual cycle? And so she checked her app and said, oh, I'm due in three days. I said, well, that's exactly why. Women will find that this is a really hard time to do intense exercise. You know, they may gravitate towards more restful periods. You know, their sleep may be disrupted because of, drops in progesterone as they're getting closer to menstruation. And so on a lot of levels, our body is intrinsically telling us what it needs. We just have to make sure we're leaning into it.
1: So thinking about this, and and you mentioned a little bit about the different macronutrients and and when to lean in and when not to lean in. So, so tell me during the follicular phase, would you say that's a time to maybe be more high protein, low carb? Is that where you sort of see that play out? Well, I think, you know, for me, the
0: con- consistent uh, the consistent macro for women throughout their menstrual cycle is protein. protein. Protein, 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 preferably animal-based. The lever is fat or carbs. So yes, you could go more ketogenic or lower carb in the follicular phase. And then, you know, you could cycle up your carbohydrates in the luteal phase. And this is actually when your body needs about... 100 to 150 calories. And by no means do I count calories. I'm just giving an estimation. It's not a lot of extra carbohydrate that you need in order to meet those uh, nutrient needs. So it could be a little more sweet potato. It might be half a cup of sweet potato instead of a quarter cup. I'm not a huge fan of gluten. So I would definitely encourage women to get their, their carbohydrates from non-starchy vegetables. You know, maybe this is the time they, maybe they have half a cup of berries or they're leaning into root vegetables really getting whole food sources of those carbohydrates to kind of round out their diet. I think that's really important. And I find for a lot of women, when they start meeting those nutrient needs, again, protein is the lever that is always pushed forward. It's just really dependent on fats or carbohydrates or the other variables. You know, once women really lean into that, they're much more satiated. They don't feel like they're depriving themselves. And I think that's really important. Fasting is not about deprivation. It's not From a scarcity mindset, it's really understanding that eating less frequently is going to help you on a lot of different levels garner the benefits without causing dysregulation of other types of hormones.
1: I'm glad you said that because uh, I would say most women, at least women in my age group, probably spend a significant portion of probably their twenties and maybe even their thirties doing things like skipping breakfast, you know, drinking tons of coffee, or maybe they have breakfast but they don't do lunch because they're busy, right? And then they they white knuckling it till they get home for dinner. And then they sort of eat everything they can while they're cooking. And so a lot of people look at fasting, and they sort of think it's kind of like that, which is completely different. Well, and I think
0: it's important for people to understand that when you're fasting, you're choosing not to eat during a prescribed time period. It's not starvation. It is not counting calories. It is really about honoring the way our bodies are designed to thrive, which is the antithesis of everything we are taught as clinicians, and younger people that we have to eat to stoke our metabolism, that breakfast is the most important meal of the day. And let's be really clear that physiologically, we would not be evolved as a species if our bodies weren't designed to tap into fat stores to use as energy during times of food scarcity. And up until refrigeration and pasteurization, there was a lot of food scarcity. You know, People couldn't just go to the quick mart and grab a bag of Cheetos, and they couldn't just run to the grocery store and binge on ice cream. Those options were not available. And yet, you know, I've watched over the last 20 plus years of being a clinician and and certainly 50 years. I mean, if you look at the research, that we have an increasingly metabolically unhealthy population. And that is directly correlated with foods we choose to eat and the food frequency within which we choose to consume them. And so I think really reframing our relationship with eating meals and how frequently we're eating meals or meal like substances is really important.
1: Yeah, it is. You know, I look back at my grandmother lived with us when I was a little kid and she was, you know, she was born before the turn of the century. And so, you know, she ate three meals a day. That was it. She never snacked. And if she really wasn't hungry, she usually would skip dinner, you know, Mm -hmm. and it was just kind of a natural thing that she did, but she never, ever snacked. And that wasn't really a big thing in our household. You know, it wasn't like I needed to eat every two or three hours because that would have ruined your dinner. And, you know, I, I would say the nutrition industry for sure in the last 20 years has really sort of messed up that message. I agree. And I think,
0: you know, I, I was raised by an Italian mom and, and my mother was very big on getting us. We had, we were supposed to be outside in the sunshine every day. We had our three meals and that was it. I was not allowed to snack and, you know, things that are now very popular like organ meats and uh, you know, having a lot of bitter vegetables were the mainstay of a lot of what we consumed. And so I think if we get back to basics, we don't have to make it complicated, but if we get back to basics, then that's hugely impactful and and I think you know much to your point, my grandmother was the same way uh oftentimes she would skip dinner and and certainly, like as I'm getting older, there are some days if I eat a really big lunch, I may not eat dinner uh and so I, I think it's important for us to to not feel like we have to ascribe to this. You know, eat snacks and mini meals so that you stoke your metabolism, eat every two to three hours. Because if we do that, we're just going to remain as metabolically unhealthy as we are.
1: Exactly. You know, that brings up the question we're talking about kind of stoking the metabolism. And I, when I was reading in your book, so it was chock full of a, lot of a lot of science around what's really happening hormonally and what's really occurring in the body with, uh, with the act of fasting. And there was some really interesting information that I had never read before, particularly about ghrelin. One of the hunger hormones and how it is very different in an intended fasted state compared to a caloric deprivation or diet state. Can you share that with my listeners? Because I think most people probably have no idea what ghrelin is. It just doesn't get the marquee, you know, marquee discussion that insulin and leptin and everything else does.
0: Yeah. So ghrelin is uh, is another another hormone, a uh, hunger hormone that usually works in opposition to leptin. And so when we're in a fasted state, we have these counter-regulatory hormones that help suppress hunger. So I, I remind people that hunger is oftentimes more a reflection of just being dehydrated. It may not even be a reflection of the fact that you're truly intrinsically hungry. And so when you're in a fasted state, over time, your body will become so adapted to saying, hey... Yeah, I'm not going to eat right now, um, and what my body is going to do is it's going to increase these kind of regulatory hormones, which are going to suppress my appetite until I get ready to open up my feeding window. And that's all done, and that's you know proven in scientific research. It is not just you know it, it's not just one of those things that we hope you know hope is is there, but it's very very different than when someone is in a, a starvation mode or where they're choosing not to eat. They're purposely choosing not to eat and they're not intending to eat. And that is a really important distinction because there is a lot of misinformation about fasting. I would say fasting, it's intermittent. It is designed to have a beginning and an end. And and at the end you are going to eat and you are going to fuel your body. And so I remind people that our, our bodies are far more sophisticated than counting calories. It's really about hormonal regulation, hormonal balance. And as one example, you mentioned ghrelin as as a uh, hunger hormone, but leptin and and certainly insulin are also really key players. And when our insulin levels are low in a fasted state, our body can go in and use stored fat as a fuel source. And so our bodies are not suffering. Our bodies are being fed. We're using stored fat as energy. And that's an important distinction to be made that when you're metabolically flexible, your body can do that on its own. You know, it's a little bit of training up front, especially if you are not utilizing ketones and uh, glucose as uh, multifaceted fuel stores to fill your body. But it it also really speaks to the fact that for a lot of people, it's very triggering not to eat. You know, for some people, you know, food is uh, not just fuel. Food is actually comfort. Food is nourishment. And we really have to you know, understand our relationship with food so that we can fast successfully. But those hormones are really important. And I think the more people understand that their body actually goes in to help them be successful with fasting. And ghrelin is one of those hormones that is kind of an underserved hero.
1: It is. It is. Also, so you mentioned metabolic flexibility. So let's kind of go into that because that truly is the crux of what's wrong with westernized society. We are, we are a sugar burning machine and that's about as good as we get. Well, and I can tell you that prior
0: to the pandemic in 2018, the UNC School of Chapel UNC School of Public Health actually did a research study, and at that time in 2018, 88.2 percent of Americans were metabolically flexible. And just based on research, because I was knee deep in research prior to this presentation I gave out in Salt Lake City last weekend, that you know the amount of weight that people have gained during the pandemic ranges anywhere from 50 to 50 pounds per person, and that was based on research from the American Psychological Association. So that 88.2% is easily now even less people are metabolically flexible. And so the average American is not metabolically flexible. And that really speaks to a couple different metrics. I like to focus on uh, metabolic syndrome. And so, you know, looking at waist circumference, looking at blood pressure, looking at fasting glucose, I would also argue fasting insulin, um, your triglyceride levels, as well as your HDL, which is your heart healthy uh, cholesterol, and this is when your body, when those those metrics are within normal range, your body is able to effectively utilize stored fat or stored glucose as fuel stores. And you actually want to be able to flex between both. You don't want to stay stuck in just burning ketones. You don't want to be. You don't want to stay, as you mentioned, a sugar burner. These are the individuals that will struggle with weight loss, they will struggle with energy issues, they will struggle with uh, mental clarity, uh, they will struggle with a, a host of issues, versus when you have metabolic flexibility, you can successfully lose weight, you have sustained energy, you can you know, get from when you wake up in the morning until whenever you choose to break your fast and have plenty of energy. And I think the average American is really suffering and not realizing that they're putting themselves the way they choose to eat, the meal frequency, the food choices. We eat too little protein. We eat too many of the wrong types of carbohydrates. And we highly adulterated fats like seed oils, as one example. And when we combine too frequent eating, uh, the wrong macros, we really set ourselves up. And, and I find for a lot of women, I mean, we, we share a, a same kind of audience A lot of women may not have problems until they hit perimenopause, you know, the five to 10 years preceding menopause. And all of a sudden, they start putting on weight, they start getting inflamed, their sleep is terrible, the exercise they used to do no longer works, the food they used to eat no longer works. And so it throws everyone for a loop, largely because most healthcare professionals, if they're trained in an allopathic model, don't really know how to support women other than to their hormones, their direction, offer up an IUD, offer an ablation, take out your uterus, have a hysterectomy, put them on thyroid meds. Um, and by no means, if you need to take medication, I'm not I'm not pointing a finger. Uh, there is a time and a place for that, of course, but we're not really talking about the lifestyle piece. And yet it's the most important piece if we want to age. I don't want to use age, age in reverse because I don't think anyone should feel like they have to do that. But I think Living your best life, irrespective of what age you are chronologically is the way I like to look at it.
1: I would say the 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 travesty that we see in just our, our population is it's, it's walking us all to an early grave. We're going to have a shorter lifespan than our parents did as a population. And then our children, for sure, are looking at a shorter lifespan because of this metabolic inflexibility and really the lack of the medical system being able to help, you know, really drive that message home. So that brings me to let's talk a little bit about um, kind of fasting and what kind of fasting errors are people making? Because I think they're like we said, there's a lot of there's a lot of different types of fasting. And then there's a lot of different recommendations out there that I think just people struggle to understand.
0: Well, I think I like to start with the basics. I I think there are a lot of well-meaning people out there that are not clean fasting, and so if you want to get the best results, you want to clean fast. And what a clean fast represents is that you are consuming beverages that are not going to evoke an insulin response. Remember, insulin is not a bad hormone, but when you evoke an insulin response, if your body perceives food is coming, it'll start creating the machinery to deal with the potential for food. So, bitter is better. You know, bitter in nature is going to uh, not evoke an insulin response, and so I think about black coffee, bitter tea. Bitter does not mean celestial seasonings, apple spice. It means black tea, green tea. It is not designed to be sweet. And for most of us, we our palates are so conditioned to eating sweet that it is a bit of a jolt to actually consume bitter teas, bitter coffees. And there's ways around this. Uh, I'll, I'll give you one of my tips. If someone is struggling with black coffee, add salt, um, You know, high quality sea salt like Redmond's, or you can add cinnamon. Neither will break your fast cinnamon actually helps with insulin sensitivity, but certainly high quality salt will change the flavor profile. I know when I first because I'm not a coffee drinker, when I first started drinking green tea, and there are lots of benefits, those bitter compounds in coffee and tea are polyphenols and polyphenols will help boost that oxidation. There's a slew of antioxidant benefits. And so don't Don't fast without consuming one of these things. You know, people talk about, I need a pre-workout. No, you don't. Have some coffee, have some tea. You can absolutely do it. And then the other piece is staying hydrated. And obviously, I'm a huge fan of electrolyte repletion. My whole background in cardiology is an NP. I'm super savvy with electrolytes. And it's a best practice. If you want to do well with fasting, you have to add in electrolytes. And there are plenty of unflavored varieties. Again, people go back to they're used to having things sweet. You know, I certainly make a product called Simply Hydration that is completely safe to take while fasted. And then if you want to take something that is sweetener like Stevia, you can certainly save it for your feeding window. But, you know, not doing clean fasting is number one. I would say number two is over fasting. A lot of women think that if a little bit of fasting is good, then longer fasts are going to be better. And if you're not sleeping, if you um, are over exercising, if you're over restricting your macros to begin with, and then you add in fasting, fasting is designed to be a hormetic stressor. So beneficial stress in the right amount at the right time. A lot of women just think they have to do everything full throttle. If they're going to do ten hours of fasting, you know, then they move to twenty, and then they move to two day fasts. And I remind people that you know, over fasting, if you lose your menstrual cycle, you stop sleeping well you're cranky and you have no energy it's just a sign that you're overdoing it and so you just have to readjust and i would say the other the other piece of fasting is you can't eat junk food in a fast food lifestyle and think that you are embracing all the benefits of fasting you know fasting is designed to improve the health of our mitochondria which are the powerhouses of our cells but if you're eating fast food that's laced with seed oils which are absolutely horrific um i did a great podcast with dr kate shanahan and She's actually a physician and a researcher in this area. Seed oils uh, disrupt the cellular membrane, so I remind people that you want to be consuming high quality food, food in its most natural state, if at all possible. Make sure we have a meal, you have protein at every meal. And then that lever about fats or carbohydrates, depending on where are you in your menstrual cycle, if you're still cycling, what your activity levels are. Obviously, I'll have more discretionary carbohydrate on days that I lift heavy. But really leaning into the fact that we're not looking to make fasting super complicated, but yet people like to do that. And I find that if you're doing those three three things, if you're clean fasting, if you're not over fasting, and if you're embracing the macros piece and doing it properly, those are best practice pieces that I think are really important. And and you're going to get more out of it than if you think you're cheating by, you know, eating, uh, I'm just going to pick on Chick-fil-A as an example, just what fell into my head. If you think you can eat Chick-fil-A three meals a day and that that's going to be healthy for you, you're mistaken.
1: Yeah, I, I agree with you. I um, am thinking of a client who got into fasting. If it was good, it was better than more than longer. And I kept telling her, slow it down, slow it down. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't need to do it that frequently. And her weight actually started going up because all of her body signals were like, this is more than what I'm ready for. So I'm going to save. And so that more is better is always part of that. And I also find sometimes, you know, the the people that are real hardcore exercisers that are maybe Mm -hmm. doing fasting for the first time that do not want to give up that extremely intense, whether it's like no offense, orange theory, like a hardcore orange class or a hardcore hit. And I'm like, okay, if you're maybe doing an extended fast, you're actually doing 24 hours or slightly longer than that. you, You do not need to be going and doing a 45 minute highly intense hit class. Personal best. Yeah.
0: No, I I I actually generally use Orange Theory Fitness or CrossFit as the examples of what middle-aged women should not be doing every day. And I find for a lot of people that when they stop over exercising or they start balancing, maybe they're going to Orange Theory twice a week or once a week and they start doing more yoga and they start doing more walking and they start focusing on strength training, that all of a sudden magically they feel better. And I I think about how when I first kind of entered perimenopause, and I hit it like a wall, because I was doing all the wrong things. What I was doing was essentially like CrossFit type classes, very early in the morning, 530 in the morning, and then go, I would go shower at the gym, and I go straight to the hospital. And that was okay in my 30s. But when I once I hit crossed into my early 40s, I was exhausted. And I had friends who were even older than I was that were doing this and still Maintaining that F, that you know, degree of um, physicality. And for me, it required me to completely back off of what I was doing. And I actually said to my husband, I didn't realize how much I didn't enjoy those workouts until I stopped doing them. And I was like, wow, like I, for an entire year, I just walked. That's how much my adrenals were just thrashed at that stage. And so I get it. You know, I was one of those people that really liked intense exercise and I still work out intensely, but differently. And I think. For a lot of people, maybe they were college athletes. Um, you know, they're adrenaline junkies. They want to do an Ironman. They want to do a half marathon. They start struggling with injuries and other things. Yeah, I know we have a mutual friend who has done several Ironman um, events, and and she talks very openly about how it completely just eroded her health at, at a certain stage. Like at a certain age point, you know, she wasn't seeing the benefits anymore putting your body under that degree of stress again not suggesting you not exercise but it has to be you know it's hormesis, the right amount in the right time, you know mindful of where you are in your menstrual cycle if you're still getting it and then you know if you're menopausal, sorry ladies you can't do all that really hardcore stuff and think that it's not going to inflame your body and dysregulate your cortisol and this this is one of those things that I think can be very hard to accept. But I always say it's not bad. It's just different. You know, we have to exercise differently in middle age than we did when we were 20. And that's not necessarily a
1: bad thing. I know that for my hardcore exercisers, I think what I hear more is that it's this fear of if I take the foot off the gas just a little bit, that the weight's going to come on rapidly. And I'm like, but it's the reason why your weight won't leave either.
0: (laughs) Exactly. It's that inflammation piece. And people don't recognize it as such. They start getting like chronic You know, overuse injuries, whether it's a foot, a knee, a hip, you know, things that, you know, they don't realize it's their body's way of telling them. And then it's also, I mean, quite honestly, these fluctuations in estradiol, you know, estrogen is this anti inflammatory, has a lot of anti inflammatory properties. But I remind women that, you know, your physiology as you're going through reverse puberty necessitates that you have to do things differently. Like, I can't tell you how many women will say, I never had this much, you know, fat around my hips and thighs and everything until I went into menopause. And, you know, I don't like this. And I always say we have to get our physiology to work for us, not against us.
1: Yeah, yeah, because it is it is very much the excess of estrogen and, and the imbalance between those hormones and perimenopause. But then the loss of estrogen and all those other hormones by menopause also makes us very uh, metabolically deranged if we're not doing the right thing which really brings up the other point you know it was the discussion around taking care of the other pieces around fasting the lifestyle piece which most people just don't want to do they're like please give me my one two levers my one diet that i can stick to every day and i can go shop for the exact same foods and my one control mechanism and that's it but we have to address those other pieces absolutely and
0: and if you don't address the lifestyle you're not going to be in a position where you're going to ultimately be successful that's really what it comes down to. If you want success, you have to be. I always say, you didn't get, you didn't become twenty five to fifty pounds overweight overnight. It's not going to change overnight. You have to be patient. Like there's a woman I got a, a message, one of my my one on one clients who is frustrated with the amount of hot flashes she's experiencing, but she's also doctor shopping. She's working with like me and three other providers, and we're all talking, but she's not patient to wait for one thing to work before she's jumping on the next concept. And and so I've had to have some very lovingly gentle conversations to say, why don't we try one thing at a time? So we know it works because if you try to do four things all at once, we don't know what's working.
1: Yeah. Or, or cherry picking from the different conversations that you've had and go, I, li- I like that suggestion, but I don't love that one. So it doesn't work very well that way. What else would people get out of your book? I know I've read it, but I know there's some really, really great recommendations and recipes.
0: Yes. Well,
1: yes, there are 50
0: amazing recipes created by what I believe, who I believe to be one of the most talented chefs out there, Beth Lipton. But it really, the book itself really walks you through the science, the hormones, why I advocate that women that are peak fertility fast differently than perimenopausal, menopausal women. The lifestyle piece. We dive deep into a 45-day program, which I have carefully cultivated over the last three years, almost four years, which is hard to believe. And so it's all the successes. And, you know, to me, it's it's really impactful that the book has only been out for a month. And I'm already having women telling me that they've lost, you know, 10 to 15 pounds. They, you know, their hot flashes are gone, they're off medication. And to me, Allowing a book to serve as inspiration for women to take back control of their lives is really why I wrote it. That, you know, it's like you can have a piece of me in your pocket and do it in a way that completely honors our physiology. And it's the thing that really means the most to me is that so many physicians, nurses, nutritionists, health coaches are now recommending the book because they've seen the value in it. And that to me is, you know, the greatest kind of support I can ask for that if if clinicians in particular, are able to recommend it to their patients and say, read this book, because I can't spend five hours with you talking about fasting. And then the feedback we get is, Oh, my gosh, I finally understand what I need to be doing. That's really impactful, and certainly super helpful. So it's a way to have me in your pocket. Um, obviously, there's a lot more to the book than that. But it's written and designed to empower you so that you can take back control of your life and not feel like, you're not in control anymore.
1: Yeah, it really is. It really is a 45 day plan, but it has a very 45 day plan for you to implement it so you can keep fasting in your life as a lifestyle. I always tell people you can't do short term, short term solutions and strategies for a long term term effect. You know, you have to take those and then implement them and keep what works. And so it is, it is a, a great book and a great set of resources for somebody trying on fasting, or especially if they've done fasting and it wasn't working, because they have probably done some of those things that you mentioned that just were causing it to not work out.
0: Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. But I, it's a tremendous honor to be able to, you know, share a program that I created out of um, a talk that was very successful a few years ago, and then be able to allow people to have a book in their home that they can use as a reference point for years to come.
1: So can I tell everybody where to get it? Obviously, all the major booksellers.
0: Yeah, I would say Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Target, your local bookstore. I always tell people, especially with the pandemic, please, please, please go to your local bookstore and give them some love. I know Books A Million is carrying it, but it's being carried in even small shops. You know, you can connect with me online at www.cynthiatherlow.com. You can Connect and hear more about my podcast, Everyday Wellness. I'm all over social media, probably most active on Instagram, but I'm on Twitter where I can be a little snarky. And then also I am, um, you know, active on Facebook. We've got a free Facebook group called Intermittent Fasting Lifestyle backslash my name. You're more than welcome to join a really lovingly supportive community. I would say I'm anti drama, so I have no problems um, you know, getting people out if they can't be supportive of one another, but it's a really great community of women and and actually men too.
1: Great. Great. Well, Cynthia, so this was such a great conversation and I'm happy you, you helped clarify some things around fasting that I hope my tribe and everybody who's listening can, can really latch on to and everybody go get the book, go get the book, go get the book, because you need those guidelines. And thank you so, so very much. No, thank you. I've been looking forward to our conversation. Awesome. Well, thank you everybody for listening to This Functional Life, and we'll see you next week. Thank you so much for tuning into This Functional Life. You are why I'm here, and I am so very grateful. You're here for a reason. I celebrate your commitment to claiming your youthful energy and stepping into this next phase of life, feeling vibrant, healthy, and powerful. I am so proud of you. Hit subscribe so you don't miss any wisdom on creating the most exceptional life on our terms. If this episode helped you in any way, please share it with a friend to spread the love and together we rise. You can follow me on social media at Betty Murray PhD. And if you want a chance to share your story with our tribe or find out more about working with my team, you can sign up at chatwithbetty.com slash podcast. Again, that's chat dot com slash podcast. See you next week. Bye bye.